You're listening to Tech Tank, a bi-weekly podcast from the Brookings Institution, exploring the most consequential technology issues of our time. From racial bias and algorithms to the future of work, Tech Tank takes big ideas and makes them accessible. Thank you all for joining the Tech Tank podcast. I am Samantha Lai, research assistant at the Center for Technology Innovation and co-producer of this podcast. I am filling in as a guest host for this episode. On February 24th, 2022, Russia invaded Ukraine, instigating the biggest ground war in Europe since World War II. And in our new technological era, warfare has taken a new face as the internet itself becomes a battlefield. As disinformation and misinformation run rife, social media companies have worked to take down false information and mitigate harms. There are a lot of interesting questions to look into here. What false narratives are the most dominant right now, and what should people look out for? What can we learn from the measures social media companies have taken so far? As Russia's internet isolation grows, what are the implications for the information ecosystem within the country and to the international nature of the internet going forward? Today, we have two experts joining us to discuss these important topics and more. Jessica Brandt is the Policy Director of the Artificial Intelligence and Emerging Technology Initiative at the Brookings Institution and a Fellow in the Foreign Policy Program's Center for Security, Strategy and Technology. And Emerson Brookings is a resident senior fellow at the Digital Forensics Research Lab of the Atlantic Council and co-author of Like War, The Weaponization of Social Media. Thank you both for coming onto our podcast. Thanks so much for having us. It's great to be here. So before we go into everything that's happening right now, let's take a step back and get a better understanding of how this conflict came to be. Jessica, can you briefly explain for us the history of Russia and Ukraine and how that led to the 2014 annexation of Crimea? Sure, happily. I guess I'd say Ukraine was in many ways a cornerstone of the Soviet Union. It was the second most populous and powerful of the Soviet states behind only Russia. And in its nearly 30 years of independence, it's really kind of forged its own path, looking to align, I would say, more closely with NATO and with Europe. And of course, Putin's Russia has viewed that as sort of anathema to its interests. In 2013, the then Ukrainian President Viktor Yanukovych, under pressure from Moscow, scrapped plans that Ukraine had had to formalize a closer economic relationship with the EU. And many Ukrainians viewed that as a corrupt decision. It sparked protests, no as the Euromaidan. And those protests, Putin framed them as a fascist coup that endangered Russian speakers in Crimea. And so in 2014, he used that justification to annex Crimea and to begin arming separatists in eastern Ukraine. It was, of course, the first time since World War II that a country in Europe took the territory of another. Emerson, can you explain for us why exactly Putin decided to invade Ukraine in February? Sure. In as much as U.S. intelligence has figured it out so far. So it's important to note that the Russian military buildup on the borders of Ukraine had been taking place for almost a year. And it appears that Putin assessed the political landscape in Ukraine and, and saw a real opportunity. President Vladimir Zelensky was elected in 2019 and a landslide victory. But by late 2021, his public approval had plummeted to less than 30%. There was a sense that Putin and senior Russian leadership had that Ukrainian civil society was hollowed out, 
that essentially it would take one good push and the whole edifice would crumble. But that said, even as Putin was amassing 190,000 soldiers on the border with Ukraine, it wasn't clear until the last minute that he was actually going to go through with a conventional invasion. I think most people watching this from afar still assumed that he was going to use the threat of military force to compel significant concessions by Ukraine and perhaps to, to fatally weaken Zelensky in, in a forced negotiation process. But it's, it's currently the conclusion of U.S. intelligence analysts that Putin decided just a few days before the invasion started that he was indeed going to launch this largest ground war since World War II. Yeah. And as we know, Russia is by no means new to information warfare. We see it happening now. We saw it happening in 2014. Would either of you be able to give us a quick recap of how disinformation was used then to further the Kremlin's objective? Sure. I'd offer maybe two examples, and I'm sure Emerson will have others. I'm thinking in particular about the downing of MH17 over eastern Ukraine by Russian-backed separatists, after which the Kremlin pursued a multi-year campaign denying culpability, claiming that the investigation was a Russophobic witch hunt, and trying to deflect culpability with multiple conflicting conspiracy theories, like including that the crash never happened, that the plane was filled with dead bodies, that it was shot down by Ukraine on U.S. orders, or by an Israeli missile, or by the CIA. I mean, just many alternative theories to deflect culpability. And it did the same thing on Crimea to deny that there ever were Russian troops in Crimea and also to justify that Russia saved Crimea from Ukrainian fascism, that it needed to do this because Kyiv was planning an invasion of Russia. And here I think we can hear echoes of, of the kinds of disinformation we're seeing today. Yeah. And with Russian operations in 2014, Russia really pioneered how you launch military operations in the social media age. Their ability to obfuscate and outright deny their military maneuvers, the process they used was quite effective in often frustrating united international response. In particular, the Russian invasion of Crimea, which at the time was not for decades, had such a land seizure taken place. It was presented as a fait accompli because Russia had, had sent in these special forces, these, quote, little green men who had essentially severed Crimea from Ukraine before the international community was even aware of what was going on. So Russia had this playbook. And there are hints Russia was trying to deploy this in the case of Ukraine itself. The fact that the initial stages of the invasion seemed intended for a lightning strike on Kyiv and the neutralization of President Zelensky. It did not seem that they were angling for as all-encompassing of an invasion as they're now in the process of executing. Yeah, that's really interesting. And to follow up on that, you mentioned the Russian playbook. What was it that made it so effective when it came to how Russia was able to launch disinformation campaigns? Well, as Jessica said, if one looks at the case of MH17, which by the way, was a great example of open source intelligence analysis in action, the fact that we could figure out what was going on. But the Russian quote unquote playbook is simply sowing multiple narratives, multiple explanations for any given action. The intention being to drown out whatever truth there was. Researchers have referred to this as the fire hose of falsehood. And again, this is something that Russia was uniquely adept at. And I think as a result, across Washington, D.C., there was a whole new cottage industry that popped up 
of which I was certainly a member, which focused on Russian hybrid warfare and on fighting in the gray zone with the anticipation that future information conflicts would be these sorts of narrative tug of wars. And I find this particularly interesting because the Russian playbook, the thing that we were expecting and were prepared to counter is not really what one sees in the first days of the invasion of Ukraine, because Russia so badly miscalculated Ukrainian political unity. And because one simply can't use the same measures of obfuscation and disinformation to disguise the movement of 190,000 soldiers that you can if you're sending in special operations forces to seize a much smaller bit of territory. Yeah, that's, that is really, really interesting. So Jessica, turning to you, what has Russia been telling not just Ukraine, but its own citizens about this war, seeing that they have, as Emerson said, miscalculated how effective their disinformation campaign would be towards Ukraine? Have they been effective domestically with their own people? Yeah, look, I think the Kremlin's been telling the Russian people that Ukrainians are drug-addled Nazis, that is a quote, who are committing a genocide against Russian speakers in eastern Ukraine and have been perpetuating provocations. And these are narratives of justification. Most recently and outlandishly, Russian state media has been arguing that Ukraine is developing chemical, biological, and nuclear weapons capabilities with the help of the United States. And this narrative, too, is designed to justify the invasion. In terms of what's landing with the Russian people, I think this is one of the hardest things for outsiders to assess. Recent polling suggests that there's significant opposition to the war in at least some quarters of Russian society, which I would say is remarkable under the circumstances of repression, but it's certainly not a majority of people. Yeah, definitely. And you mentioned the bioweapons conspiracy going along right now. Emerson, would you be willing to tell us more about what that conspiracy itself is about and how that has interacting with conspiracies propagated by the American far right and how that has converged with Russian propaganda? In as much as I can, this is something that it, it feels like it's changing by the hour. But the short version of this bioweapons conspiracy alleged by Russia, which seems to be their most effective disinformation narrative. The short version is that Ukraine, through these public health research facilities, which have received US government grants, Ukraine was somehow engineering pathogens, which they intended to release on the Russian people. And so Russia was then casting its invasion as a preventive measure, that their role, their job is to secure these facilities and to try to stop this, this bioterrorism that Ukraine was planning. And the reason I say that I think this is going to become the principal disinformation narrative is because it seats so well with conspiracy theories, and especially COVID-19 conspiracy theories that we've seen developing over the last two years. At the start of the outbreak of COVID, in early 2020, it was the Chinese Communist Party and some American conspiracy theorists who alleged that the origin of COVID-19 was a U.S. bio research facility in Fort Detrick. And that conspiracy theory has continued to evolve, continued to take on new life. You can think about any conspiracy theory as a piece of improvisation, like, a, like an improv band, where different people are showing up with their instruments and they're all playing their own tunes, but they're adding to this overall melody. And in this case, making it ever more dangerous. And I fear that the bioweapons narrative is particularly engineered to take root back in the United States and among some Western audiences 
who have long been skeptical of government and who, when presented with this bioweapons narrative, may question why their governments ever supported the government of Ukraine. And they may become more sympathetic to the Russian aggression. I think all of that's right. And so I would agree with all of it. And I would just also add, I think there are interesting echoes here with the U.S. justification for the war in Iraq, which was to go in to defend itself against the purported development of weapons of mass destruction capability by another government. Now here, this is wholly fabricated, but I think there's another layer to this, which is also taking that justification and pushing it back on the United States and saying, you can do it. If it's good enough for you, it's good enough for us. Yeah. So I remember for years, there was an advertisement for RT right next to the White House, which had a a cartoon of Colin Powell on the floor of the UN General Assembly, giving the famous speech in which he claimed chemical weapons development by Saddam Hussein and Iraq. And then the the tagline for the RT advertisement was question more. So now (laughs) they're very deliberately turning uh, that same narrative Uh, and using it as justification for their own aggressive action. Well, that's terrifying. But we've talked a little bit about what the Russian government has been up to. Jessica, would you also be able to tell us more about what the Ukrainian government has been saying and instances where they have also been responsible for disseminating disinformation in the context of this conflict? Yeah, I might push back on that framing a little bit. I think the Ukrainian government has shared accounts of bravery um, in the face of Russia brutality. And I think those accounts have at times blended fact and myth. I think another element of Ukraine's information strategy that is controversial is its release of video interviews on social media of captured Russian soldiers claiming that they'd been lied to by their commanders about the purpose of the invasion, etc. And I think that could be a violation of protections for prisoners of war under international law. But I would say that these claims and these moves really don't compare to the very purposely false narratives that have been pushed by the Russian government to justify its naked aggression against Ukraine, which isn't to say that they don't pose challenges for tech companies that have to decide how to respond. But I just I think it's a very different sort of action that we're looking at here. Yeah, definitely. Those are two very different things. You're right, Jessica. But even then, with how things are going right now, even though Russia is you know, putting in so much effort in trying to remake so many of these narratives, there's still a lot of talk about how Zelensky and Ukraine continue to win the information war. Emerson, do you think that's a good conclusion to draw, an accurate conclusion to draw? Is that still a little preemptive right now? Look, Ukraine undeniably won the information war that first crucial weekend. I think that was also when the information war mattered the most. Because in, in the course of a few days, it was the, the bravery of Zelensky, the bravery and heroism of Ukrainians, and these visceral images of Russian missiles raining on Ukrainian cities, which really galvanized Western policymakers. The U.S. had been trying to organize an effective sanctions regime against Russia in the event of invasion. But the actual steps that the international community took and the speed at which they did it I think surprised virtually everyone. Russia was expelled from the global economic system in a weekend. And that was faster, I I think, than than most anyone expected. And I would attribute that almost entirely to the way that Ukrainians understood just how important it would be to tell Ukrainian story and to engage the literally billions of people who were learning about the conflict through addresses by Zelensky and firsthand witness videos. So the information conflict mattered the most in the beginning. Ukraine decisively won it. Now, I I think Ukraine continues to win the information conflict, but increasingly 
the war is being driven by military events. On Twitter, you can still follow the conflict from day to day, but a lot of the imagery that we see are of battles that have already taken place. They provide a very incomplete view of the war itself. And so while the information conflict certainly still matters, I think the logic of military operations and military deployments begins to matter more as a conflict grinds on. Yeah, yeah, definitely, definitely. As information war continues, we've also been hearing a lot about the news pieces on Russian teens doing TikTok propaganda, saying the same message as each other. And there's another piece that came out earlier this week about the White House prepping American TikTok influencers on how they should be talking about the war in Ukraine. What are both of your thoughts on what I should or should not be allowed with this new field of information warfare? I can tell you what you shouldn't do. You shouldn't give TikTok stars a script as Russia did. I mean, we can start by talking about what's effective and what's not. The Russian case was extraordinary to me because here you you have what was probably some of the only few influencers that Russia has left, which could possibly convey their justification for war. And now they're having these stars all read the same script. TikTok in particular, stars thrive or stars are destroyed by how authentic they seem. So this action was emblematic of an authoritarian propaganda regime, but it was also deeply destructive for whatever propaganda goals Russia wanted to achieve. On the other hand, I think the US idea of having a short briefing for their own TikTok stars is is brilliant. It's a great use of staff time, but I think pound for pound, White House staff explaining the conflict to these young stars and uh, young influencers and, and answering any questions they may have, I think that's probably going to have a much more decisive media effect than your average press briefing with how large an audience is actually going to be exposed to the White House message. I would say Washington absolutely does need a strategy for pushing back on Russian advances in the information space. And I think an important thing to remember um, is that that strategy needs to be in concordance with democratic values. So I think it's absolutely not a good idea to go toe to toe with Russian trolls as the French were exposed to have been doing in Africa not too long ago. But to, and to remember that Russia deliberately selects these tools because it believes there's sort of asymmetric advantages that rebound to them, right? That they could take advantage of the short-term vulnerabilities that are created by our very open information environment and the fact that their own closed information environment and the sort of there are very few normative constraints on lying in an autocratic regime, for example, um, kind of insulate Putin from from some blowback. I think so. Remember that they're sort of selecting asymmetric tools because they they think it's terrain that will play to their advantage. So we don't have to compete on the terrain of their choosing. We should compete on the terrain of ours, and we should take advantage of our own strengths. And I think some of that looks like exposing kind of the failures and false promises. And so to, you know, to the extent that the Western governments have been sharing casualty numbers and highlighting the costs of this war back to the Russian public, I think that's a good move. The working with allies, for example, in the lead up to the invasion to declassify information very quickly that got ahead of Putin's plans for creating a justification for invasion, for example. I mean, those are sort of the kinds of moves where you see Western governments acting in accordance with their values because those values are strengths and contesting the information space in a, in a much more effective way. Yeah, those are really, really great points. And as it goes with the information space that we see today, there's so much information out there, as we've seen even surrounding this conflict with people recycling old clips, a lot of confusion about what's going on. For the average person, what advice would you two have on 
how they could verify things, how can they make sure what they're seeing is real and how they themselves are not perpetuating the further spread of disinformation and misinformation. So I don't want to sound defeatist, but I've reached the conclusion that you really can't know how the conflict is going if you tune into social media exclusively. One of the great ironies of uh, war in the social media age is that you, you can see so much of what's going on. You have in such a window into this horrible thing, but you have no way to put the pieces together. You can see fragments of the war, but the fog of war, it lays just as thick as it always has. And so I would say people who are following the conflict on whether it's, it's TikTok, Twitter, YouTube, anywhere that you can see direct and unmediated dispatches from people in harm's way, or uh, Ukrainian soldiers who are fighting Russian, or Ukrainian government accounts that are posting about a victory, understand that you are getting these surreal moments of insight into a process which has long been a mystery for people. But also understand that seeing these, these decontextualized fragments does not give you a sense of how the war itself is going. That's still where you really have to rely on the accounts of journalists and on articles which are able to take all these little fragments of primary source data and then properly contextualize them to give you a much better sense of how the war is actually going. And, and one more point here and something I'm increasingly concerned about is that the predominance of pro-Ukraine content on Twitter and elsewhere is always inspiring, but it might lead people to think that the war is going more in Ukraine's favor than it actually is. So as time goes on, it will be ever more important to pay attention to military briefings and to be paying attention to journalists who are able to consolidate a range of sources to tell their story. Yeah, I think Emerson's advice is good advice. Be cautious of real-time, decontextualized, unverified reports and know that Journalists are on the ground doing great work, trying to add context and to verify. That's what I'd say. Yeah, definitely. And it's kind of an interesting dilemma where everyone nowadays is so reliant on social media for information. And yet there's so much changing out there and so it shapes so much of public opinion. And yet there's so much that we also kind of have to always keep an eye out for and make sure that what we see isn't necessarily true. So it's interesting to see how that also plays into information warfare, how that shapes diplomacy, how that shapes people's impressions of the war going on right now. But also looking at that and looking at what social media companies have been up to. In response to this war, social media companies have also been doing a lot to tackle the misinformation and disinformation they see. Jessica, can you give us a quick overview of major measures social media companies have taken so far to protect Ukrainian citizens since Russia invaded Ukraine and also to prevent disinformation attacks against the West? Yeah, sure. I mean, the companies have taken numerous steps. But to name a few, I guess, Meta blocked Russian state media in Europe and in Ukraine, and it's demonetized and downranked it elsewhere. Twitter has been labeling all tweets related to Russian state media. YouTube at first demonetized and then ultimately blocked Russian state media. Google News has stopped surfacing Russian state media in its search results. Bing, Microsoft's search engine, for example, has stopped directing traffic to Russian state media content unless it's very very clear that that's where the user intended to go. Personally, I am a fan of interventions like labeling, demonetizing, downranking rather than outright bans, because I think the former can be 
quite effective. And I think there are some real precedent challenges when governments, even if they're democratic European governments, ask platforms to outright ban content, which is what we've seen, frankly, in Europe. Yeah, definitely. Looking at what social media companies have done so far, would either of you have advice on what they could have done differently or whether or not what they're doing right now is adequate? So the social media companies had to make extraordinary decisions very quickly. Arguably, they had to move just as fast as national governments did, if not even faster, in trying to figure out what their wartime policies would be. And I I think there were some missteps here. As Jessica alluded to, there's quite a difference between labeling or downranking Russian state propaganda versus removing it entirely. And if one is going to take those more drastic steps, it's good for the, the platforms to refer to their own terms of service in doing so. There was a case in particular when the European Union swiftly passed a new regulation, which would ban RT and other Russian propaganda from broadcasting in the European Union. They then wrote a pretty intimidating letter to Western social media companies saying that they too needed to stop featuring these services in European countries. And the platforms quickly acquiesced to this request. And they publicly said they were doing so because of a request by the European Union. And these these little distinctions matter because the fact that they put out there that the European Union had requested and then they they had decided to do it, instead of saying that they'd refer to their own terms of service, this sets the sort of precedent which authoritarian nations in much different contexts are going to point to for years or even decades to come whenever they're trying to censor their own political opposition or any content which they don't like. These steps taken in times of emergency, particularly the steps to block voices, will absolutely be repurposed by bad actors in much different contexts. Yeah, I think that's exactly right. I mean, there's obviously a big difference between democratic governments and authoritarian ones, but I think we'd be wise to remember that there are many, many governments that fall somewhere in between. And so I do fear that this will be used as precedent by many other governments in many other political contexts to take down many other forms of content that they deem in opposition to their political or, or other interests. And, and so I think what we need from the companies is just much more transparency as well and detail about specifically what actions are being taken and when. Yeah, definitely, definitely. And we've also seen over the last couple of days of Russia actually talking about the conversation, what kind of precedence this sets with other countries. We see Russia banning access to Western social media platforms such as Facebook and Instagram. And there are a lot of people wondering if Putin is rolling down kind of an information iron curtain once again. And there might be a future scenario where instead of disputing over, oh, what content should and should not be allowed on Facebook, we see a possibility of Russia setting up something like China's Great Firewall. Is this something that is feasible? What does this mean for Russia's social media users and the future of the global internet? I'd say if Russia succeeds at chasing out big tech, I think that's probably good for Putin's project of information control. I think it's bad for Russian citizens who could really use access to non-government information and to digital tools for organizing. And I also think it's bad for the open global character of the internet. Yeah. One of the tensions that the social media company policy teams faced is that they wanted to keep the door open to Russian users, not Russian propagandists, but to a rich Russian civil society, which until a few days ago, thrived on some social media platforms. No, most most Russians didn't use Facebook. Most Russians don't engage in extended political debate because it's a different culture. 
And because when you've lived under Putin for 20 years, you don't have a rich political life anymore. But a ton of Russians still used Instagram to engage in culture and entertainment and to discuss politics on the margins. After the invasion began on February 24, a platform like Instagram was the source of a lot of high-profile dissent from Russian celebrities and, and cultural figures. It was a much freer space than certainly any domestic Russian alternative. And the, the loss of these platforms is a terrible blow for any sort of Russian anti-war movement. And it is unfortunately a great victory for Putin's regime because it will be all the easier to police other domestic Russian platforms and to intimidate anyone who might engage in online dissent. Yeah, yeah, that's not a good development. So one last question before we wrap this up. We don't know what the end will be in the physical war that's going on right now and potentially the information war. Are there lessons that American and European regulators should be picking up about the use of technology and social media during times of conflict from everything else going on right now? I would just emphasize Emerson's point that decisions made in moments of crisis set precedents that last long after the crisis is over. And I think that's an important takeaway here. For sure. Emerson, what about you? Well, something we've seen over the last few weeks is I think the the inadequacy of the policy frame that we've had around technology companies for a long time. We're always wanting them to do more. We're always saying that they, they failed in a multitude of ways. We regret the power that they wield in our civic life. But when you listen to the tech company side, you hear people say again and again, we don't want this power. Uh, we would actually like more guidance on how to use it effectively. And that kind of argument, I, I think in some cases, it's rung a bit hollow. Here, we do see cases where, where it's been a, a handful of Meta or Twitter executives having to make extraordinarily weighty decisions regarding war propaganda and violent content and dehumanizing disinformation campaigns that could lead to the deaths of thousands of people. And there's simply not government guidance to aid them in that decision-making process. I think if there was a stronger government guidance, they might welcome that because that would ease some of this responsibility, which does rest on their shoulders, which they now acknowledge, but which really ultimately is, should not be the job of a, a for-profit Silicon Valley company. Yeah, definitely. And to follow up on that, what kind of government guidance would be appropriate? What do you see as the future of the governance of social media? And in what way can governments and social media companies work together? I am still not fully settled on this, but I think the experience of Russia's invasion of Ukraine is really testing the idea that social media can be a neutral space in times of great conflict. Because if this is the original idea, like the, the cyber utopian vision of the early platforms. But in reality, if Facebook, for instance, was a neutral space right now in this conflict, it would mean deleting the posts and firsthand accounts of, of thousands of Ukrainians who've now had their loved ones murdered, who are now rightfully uh, vowing revenge against Russian invaders. There's a point at which one does have to make a decision in which you pick a side. And I think. This war illustrates that. And this will be uh, a great source of, of debate in the technology policy space in the years to come. Yes, definitely. Jessica, do you have any last words before we close? 
I would just emphasize the importance of making transparency the norm. There's a good legislative proposal on the table right now that would do that. I think measures in that direction are ones that I think we could find broad agreement on. And so I think that's a promising path. Absolutely. So thank you so much again, Emerson and Jessica, for coming on to our Tech Tank podcast today. This conversation is clearly going to be ongoing, and we really, really appreciate the contributions you made today and the time you took to come on to our podcast. So this has been another episode of Tech Tank, where conversations around tech and telecom are done in palatable bites, not bits. Please follow this podcast and other issues on our Tech Tank newsletter. I'm Samantha Lai, Research Assistant at the Center for Technology Innovation and co-producer of Tech Tank. Thank you for listening. Thank you for listening to Tech Tank, a series of roundtable discussions and interviews with technology experts and policymakers. For more conversations like this, subscribe to the podcast and sign up to receive the Tech Tank newsletter for more research and analysis from the Center for Technology Innovation at Brookings.